Good morning. I'd like to welcome you all uh, to this day at Spirit Rock of Dharma in the Workplace. It's the first time that we've done a day on this theme, so the whole day from my point of view is quite experimental, and we'll just kind of have to see how it goes. But I'm really happy uh, to see you all today. And I had a lot of, uh, I found I had a lot of enthusiasm as I was preparing uh, for this day because it's a topic that I care a lot about and yet I've never really had a chance to talk with people about it. So I think this could be an interesting kind of opening day for uh, me and hopefully for you all as well. My name is Guy Armstrong and I'm one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock. Uh, I also have had a background in uh, various kinds of other work, uh, some of them totally unconnected to Buddhism or Dharma practice, uh, which I'll get into in a bit. But one of the things I like about it to the day today is that there aren't many times when these two topics can come together, Dharma and uh, our relationships in work. And sometimes I wonder if um, you know uh, they're sort of meant to be together at all. Uh, I was watching the uh, televised uh, proceedings on C-SPAN this week of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And they were doing an investigation called uh, Competition in the Computer Industry. And the proceedings were being chaired by Senator Orrin Hatch, who's a Republican from Utah. And there were three uh, prominent uh, computer industry specialists who were on the panel, who were Bill Gates of Microsoft, Scott McNeely of Sun, and uh, Jim Barksdale of Netscape, companies that are launched in bitter rivalries uh, at the moment. And uh, basically, the uh, whole hearing was called to try and put uh, more and more pressure on Microsoft. It's really the gist of the whole proceedings. There's a federal antitrust investigation going on uh, concurrently with this. And so you sort of start to wonder if the concept of right speech and truth-telling has any place at all in our public <laughs> forums, because the chairman of the committee, who's very anti-Microsoft, uh, said with a very straight face, uh, this proceeding today is not directed to be critical of any one company in particular. <laughs> yeah, right. And then Bill Gates, called upon to defend uh, the business practices of Microsoft, replied with a very straight face, no, Microsoft does not have a monopoly in PC operating systems. Yeah, right. So there's often in, in uh, you feel in the world of work and certainly in the world of public discourse, there's just a parrying of words in which truthfulness and what Dharma really means is truth uh, doesn't really have a place to play. So it may be difficult for us to, to bring these two worlds together. I also read a story recently in the Wall Street Journal about a, a number of entrepreneurs who had all made hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, various startup ventures, again in the computer industry, saying that, um, no, their, their interest in their work wasn't about the money. <laughs> Not about the money. Um, but then they quoted a venture capitalist who was connected to one of these uh, startup firms who said, oh, well, yeah, the idea is, you know, first we do an IPO so that the stock options, an initial public offering, so the stock options of all the employees become worth something and they get rich. And then the next step is we aim to get bought out by a larger company, you know, through a merger and acquisition. So they buy us and our stock goes up further, so we get a double pop. And yet, you know, the heads of the companies are saying, no, this isn't about money. Excuse me. Um, in my work life, apart from the Dharma teaching that I've done, which I started in 1984, 
I've also worked as a computer programmer. I've worked as a teacher overseas in the Peace Corps. I've worked in the Peace Corps for two years in Malaysia. Uh, I helped to run a small alternative school in Palo Alto. This was in the uh, mid-70s when these things were quite trendy. And what, what worked best about our school, I'm sort of sorry to say, was the name of it. It was called the Renaissance School for Creative Unfoldment. <laughs> and uh, we didn't quite live up to the potential, but it was a great name. Um, I've worked in, um, also in the, the last job I had outside uh, the Dharma world was five years with Microsoft, which I started in technical support because I like turning people on to uh, computers. And then I, I've moved naturally into sales and then into sales management. So that's sort of my most recent experience, and it is with this company that's currently under the spotlight of Federal Inquiry. And uh, I still carry this bag around from my days uh, with Microsoft. It's sort of my low-cost low briefcase. And I was just reflecting that uh, very much like the company, it's actually stood up very well. It's 10 years old now, but it's starting to get a little soiled. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's happening to Microsoft as well, so it's very fitting. So what I'd like us to talk about today, you know, this is not, uh, you know, there are a lot of different ways we could approach uh, this issue. And uh, today is, um, is different from some of, the some of the ways it could have been structured. This is not sort of a corporate workshop on how to practice mindfulness uh, in, in the place of work, although we'll certainly touch on that and it's an important aspect. I'm not a management consultant. So I'm not going to try to tell people the best way to deal with employees or how to set up enlightened HR policies. Um, I don't have any David White poems to read. So <laughs> some of you may be very disappointed and want to leave right now. Um, but I'm, I'm primarily a Dharma teacher. And what I'd like to talk about today is the life of work viewed from the perspective of Dharma practice, specifically of people who are committed to following the teachings of the Buddha via the Eightfold Path. And I think it's a very ripe uh, field for inquiry and investigation. And I think that um, all of us, have, having been practitioners for some, some time, most of you, um, all have a lot to share in this area from your own struggles and efforts to bring these two worlds together. So the day will be a combination of uh, some didactic stuff from up front. I do have a few things that I'd like to say today. But also I want to uh, give a lot of time for discussion, both in the large group, uh, all of us listening to each other, and also in different small group formats so that you can talk more personally with one another, hear one another's issues, um, be able to express your own, and also to learn, uh, as all of you have made different uh, tracks and understandings and pathways in this field to be able to learn from one another. So it's a day where I intend to learn a lot uh, from you as, as well as hopefully passing on some of my thoughts. I'd like to just um, kind of get a feel for the group uh, to begin with. And I'm curious, uh, you know, because people can come into this question from a lot of different angles. How many of you are currently involved in the world of business? How many of your livelihoods? Great. Okay, so it looks like somewhere between a third and a half of the group. Uh, how many of you are in uh, some form of administration that involves uh, service or nonprofit? 
Okay, good. Thanks. How many of you are doing direct service work, like uh, teachers, therapists? Okay, thank you. How many of you are people who, in your work, work with your hands? Good. So I'm thinking of people, and I, please enlighten me, there may be more, but I'm thinking of people like uh, builders, carpenters, fine artists, craftspeople, cooks, typists I don't quite put in that category. Uh, clerical workers I don't quite put in that category. Gardeners, body workers. Uh, because you all are a lucky group because you actually get to use your work as mindfulness practice. So that's kind of a rare category. The, uh, the so-called information workers, uh, it's very hard to combine that directly. If you're sitting in front of a computer screen all day or your main task is intense interactions with other people, it's hard to make that so strictly a mindfulness practice, although we'll talk about ways to bring that in. But for people who actually work with your hands, it lends itself very well to that. Developing dharma in the workplace is no different than developing dharma in all of our life. We shouldn't really compartmentalize or separate these two, and we shouldn't imagine that there's a a magic bullet for bringing dharma alive in work any more than there's a magic bullet for bringing dharma alive in all of our lives. The dharma practice of our life is a lifelong project. If you believe the teachings of the Buddha on rebirth, it may be a project of many lifetimes. <laughs> At any rate, it's not a small-scale endeavor. And bringing dharma alive in the workplace is no different. I actually believe that our aspirations, our goals in the workplace, should be no different than our goals in our whole life, which is that we would like to uh, embody in our work our deepest human potential for awakening, for living with uh, true wisdom and compassion. So these are the standards and the goals that I think we should be aiming to bring into our work as well. I really don't see any difference between the two. And uh, I think as the day goes on and we talk about some of these issues in more detail, hopefully uh, we can get a flavor of why that is. Just as practice transforms our daily life, our everyday life, so practice also ought to transform our work. And if it doesn't, then um, it may not be working. The practice may not be working. In In my own life, I've experienced a tremendous change in my relationship to work. The first job I had when I got out of college, it was 1969, uh, the Vietnam War was going on, and I took a job with uh, Shell Oil in Houston, Texas, as a computer programmer. I was doing Fortran programming on a large mainframe. I absolutely hated it. I hated the work. I was stuck in a a small office. It was a private office. Um, It didn't have any windows. Even the door didn't have a window. And I was basically cooped up in the office for eight hours a day, reading manuals and writing programs. I didn't have a connection of um, a heart connection with anyone else who worked there. I I was um, starting to get interested in Buddhism and the whole field of psychology. And in Shell Oil in 1969, I couldn't find anybody else who was (laughs) in Texas. I felt very isolated and I was miserable. Um, That was the beginning of my work career. 
I also felt uh, that mid, sort of midway in my, I guess, career life, I, I was working at Hewlett Packard in California. And there I felt a lot more uh, connection with people. I felt a lot more openness from the company. Uh, I was kind of in my hippie phase then, so I, I actually had, had very long hair and a beard. And I'd come to work in jeans. That was fine with HP. One day uh, on Halloween, we dressed up in costumes, so I wore a business suit. <laughs> it was my Halloween costume that year. And I felt like the bridges were starting to be made. When I worked at Microsoft, oh, but one other thing I want to say about HP, I still felt overwhelmed and fearful in, um, in my work setting. I felt that the uh, corporation was too large and too impersonal, and I was just lost within that, and I felt very much exposed and at risk. I now look back and see that mostly as a function of my own psychology at the time. And in my latest job with Microsoft, I felt that I had grown up enough that I was actually able to play a constructive role in the office of helping other people who felt threatened or vulnerable or at risk um, to at least be a sympathetic ear, a sympathetic shoulder. So in my own personal trajectory, I can see my, uh, my situation go from being isolated from being fearful, from feeling that I was overwhelmed, to feeling, um, I won't say in charge because it's too volatile a company, uh, but feeling uh, comfortable, feeling that I could provide some stability and provide an ear to other people in the organization. So that's just one way in which, as we mature as people, we have the opportunity to bring um, a different spirit to our work. And practice should aim at moving us along that kind of continuum. I'd also suggest that the workplace may be the richest area in which we can test our Dharma understanding and apply our Dharma understanding. You know, in our, in our family, in our personal life, we have a lot of choice um, about who we're with, who we spend our time with. Not so much with our children, granted, but usually there's a lot of love there to begin with. But certainly with our choice of partners, uh, with the friends that we spend our time with. And in some ways, we can tailor that situation to suit our likes and dislikes a little better. In the workplace, those uh, choices are taken away from us. And we can end up spending quite a lot of time with people we might never have wanted to walk through the same door with, much less hang out with for eight hours a day. The workplace, I feel, for, for most of us today, is our primary community. It's a little bit scary that the way our uh, society has been structured through the Industrial Revolution is that our community, for most of us, is not where we live. When you think about the way humans have grown up on this earth for the last million years, our community has been the people uh, near whom we live, who have worked together with us to survive, who um, become part of our extended family, and that we share our whole lives with, usually from birth to death. With the Industrial Revolution, that has all changed. That kind of community has uh, been killed away for most of us. But for most of us, the people that we spend more time with, the people that we hang out with, the people we interact with the most, are often the people at work. So then the real test of our Dharma practice is, can we bring our understanding and our kindness and our compassion into those relationships? And it's difficult because we don't have the element of choice there. The main thrust of our Dharma practice, 
in our life or in our work is to take the self-centeredness out of our life. In brief summary, that's what Dharma practice is all about. Taking out this self-centered attitude that thinks that my needs and wants should be the center of my universe. As we take that self-centeredness out in all of our life, we open up to more compassion and more kindness. But the work setting is no different. It is entirely possible to approach our work without as much a self-centered investment. And when we do that, we become a much cleaner vehicle for the Dharma. Those of you who are in direct service know this firsthand, that when we aren't present, something else can come through us that can really help people. But for anyone who's in a life of relationship, the opportunity for service is there. By being more absent, by not being so self-oriented in our views. This is a comment from Krishnamurti, which is talking about love, but I think it can also apply just as well to the relationships in work. Love in relationship is a purifying process as it reveals the ways of the self. Without this revelation, relationship has little significance. I feel this is very true of our relationships at work. If we are not using our work situation to illuminate our, our self, and another way to say that would be our clinging and grasping and identification, then work has little significance beyond survival. It's very important to begin to inquire in the work setting, what is it revealing of the ways in which I'm holding, of the ways in which I'm bound? The Buddha basically gave us the three main areas of the Eightfold Path in which to look at this question. So this is the way I'd like to structure the day today. The Buddha divided the Eightfold Path, this path to awakening, into the areas of ethical conduct, sometimes called virtue, of meditation, which involves the fields of effort, of concentration, and of mindfulness, and the third of the fields is wisdom or understanding. So what I'd like to do is to really look at our uh, relationship to work, look at our workplace environment in the lights of ethical conduct, of meditation, formal meditation practice, and wisdom or understanding. And I think that any approach to work that doesn't involve looking at all three of these areas is going to be incomplete. We really need to take a close look at all three of these as they impact our work. So the, um, the, day, the, the way I've basically structured the day is that I want to give a short talk on each of these three topics, virtue, meditation, and wisdom, as it applies to our life of work. After the talk, I'd like there to be some time for discussion in the large group, but then I have specific questions or areas that I think it might be helpful to investigate through small groups. So typically then after a talk, we'll break into smaller groups, maybe about five or six, seven, uh, for you all to share your understandings in those areas, then come back together and hear what's come out of the large group, in the, in the large group. Then we'll, we'll put some sitting time in throughout the day so that we can all come to a greater uh, stillness, greater depth, and that will allow these issues to have a deeper resonance for us. Okay. And I wonder if there are any questions or comments uh, about the uh, day so far. 
We'll get into all these areas in more detail. So if it's a specific area on mindfulness, for example, I'd ask you to hold that. But any questions about the basic themes? Mm-hmm. I have more of a comment. I haven't yeah. attended one of your sittings before, and I'm delighted to have an experience with someone that doesn't start from a psychology background <coughs> and mm-hmm. has come to the Dharma and has started from mm-hmm. the technical world. Okay. So it's very, it's very interesting. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I, I feel um, a deep relationship between my love of science and my love of the Dharma because I basically feel that what the Buddha put out was the science of happiness. He just laid out very clearly, if you want to be happy in a wise way, here are the steps to take to do it. It's empirically verifiable. And each of us is our own laboratory for doing that. Thanks. Any other comments, questions? Okay, then I'd like to begin the day uh, actually with a period of sitting, hopefully to to allow us all to settle in a bit. And this will be about a uh, 30-minute period of sitting meditation. I'll give some brief instructions because uh, the day is uh, open to those who haven't had meditation background. Let me just ask, are there people here who haven't had meditation instruction at Spirit Rock before? Okay, that's great. So I will give meditation instruction um, through this period. Another aspect of uh, ethical conduct is right livelihood. This is another way that the Buddha framed it. Unfortunately, the teachings of the Buddha aren't a great amount of help in this area. The Buddha was uh, largely teaching monks and nuns. They have a very different form of livelihood. It's called begging. Now, if any of you want to learn how to be good beggars, the Buddhist texts provide great instruction. But for, uh, you know, the Buddha didn't envisage job titles like... uh, multimedia graphics engineer (laughs) or substance abuse counselor. So he didn't have many discourses on those kinds of livelihood. Here's what he said about right livelihood, just to give you an idea. And what, friends, is right livelihood? Here a disciple, having abandoned wrong livelihood, earns his living by right livelihood. This is called right livelihood. Okay? Have you got that? Okay. Now, there are certain things that the Buddha defined as wrong livelihood, uh, specifically trading in weapons, trading in living beings, trading in meat or fish slaughtered animals, because the spirit of that goes against the first precept, which is not killing. Trading in drugs and intoxicants, not uh, pharmaceutical drugs, not medically alleviating drugs, but uh, intoxicating drugs and trading in poisons. Those are considered to be wrong forms of livelihood or any livelihood that transgresses the precepts. So, I think for ourselves in the modern world, there are other issues about right livelihood. I think one of the big ones is, is this the right work for me? Is this the job that lets me flower as a Dharma practitioner and as a person? Is it it a job that contributes to my unfolding? It's a big question. Does it contribute to the well-being of myself and others? Or is it taking away? Is it it a job that's injuring my well-being and injuring the well-being of others? A question that comes in often for practitioners um, who are committed to the path of Dharma is, do I need to be involved in service work? 
There's a lot of jobs aren't directly in service work. When I was selling Microsoft software, I mean, for God's sake, what difference does it make if the customer ends up running Microsoft Word or WordPerfect, right? I'm not making anybody's life better. I'm carrying out the aims of a business whose aim is to make money. So, is it important for a Dharma practitioner to be involved in a job uh, that's directly service-oriented? And I think that's a big question. I think it's a question each person has to answer personally. So I don't think there's a blanket answer. For myself, I found a service component in my life through going to, through different jobs. At one part of my life, I was uh, doing part-time work as a computer consultant and part-time work as a Dharma teacher. Other times I've been full-time in one or another, a service job or a computing job. And that was the way that I brought it in to my life. And that was okay for me. But it's a question I think everybody needs to look at for themselves. And I would recommend that people find a way to serve, even if it's not through uh, their livelihood. But those are some of the things I thought we could discuss when we come back. Okay, that's basically all I wanted to say about the issue of ethical conduct. Any questions, comments, please? Well, I actually didn't know about the sexual component of it until months later. So mostly what I saw was a bad decision taking place. And I also realized that if I had tried to do anything about that bad decision, nothing would have come of it. You know, I would have created a lot of trouble for myself and the outside situation wouldn't have changed at all. So my manager actually... Um, did sort of hurl himself at that wall and created a lot of uh, enemies among the people who were supporting that decision. He ended up leaving the company under a cloud. And because uh, uh, I'm not mentioning any names, I'll tell you, he left behind 10,000 options in Microsoft stock that today, I just did the calculation yesterday because I was kind of curious, would be worth $28 million. That's right. I'll, I'll tell him that next time I see him. Spirit Rock says don't worry about it. Yes? When you were talking about how sometimes we don't intervene out of our own timidity, mm -hmm. what I've noticed is that we have that anxiety, mm -hmm. we don't intervene, and later what happens is when things escalate or they continue, yes. we're so enraged when we do intervene, mm -hmm. we do it mm -hmm. blaming mm -hmm. and with the charge, so that's hard to remember, though, when you're faced with the, the fear. Yes. No, it's a good point. Often when the thing first comes up, also it may look like a smaller thing at that point, and we think, oh, well, I can let this go by. But we accumulate a charge around it, and then when it does get to be a bigger thing, which most problems do if they're not dealt with, then our charge is bigger and the whole stakes are bigger. That's a really good point. Thank you. Yes? You talked about um, service making that choice, and... With respect to, to uh, being engaged Buddhist, yes, isn't that a choice? I mean, isn't you know one of the choices is to sit in the monastery and you know meditating, and the other one is engaging and getting out in the streets and you know by practicing business, participating, really showing that Buddhism and the eight points can be mm -hmm. practiced in an environment of greed and everything else. Oh, I think definitely. Um, I definitely believe that the, that the work world, the business world particularly, needs more examples of uh, spiritual business 
for example. So I think it does make a difference, and it can, it can be a service component of a business job, definitely. And I think finding that service component in a business job is an important thing for a practitioner to do. But can't that be by the person's individual integrity and just being having that quality and people looking up to him knowing that he's doing that? Yes. I, I definitely think it can. And I also think that most businesses, you know, certainly publicly owned businesses, their, bo their bottom line commitment is to making a profit for the shareholders. So you could say the overt or stated aim of the organization is not necessarily along service goals. And as a person working, to the, working with the organization and committed to the organization, you know, one of our goals is certainly not an explicit service goal. It's to help the company make more money. So there I see there's a blend. There, I think it's important in that situation to respect the company's orientation, but also to find our own service meaning within that. But I'm talking about the individual. Mm -hmm. I mean, as the individual, the leader of the company, being able to have that ability to engage people that they come in with in a day-to-day -day business, doesn't that provide a great service? Yes, I think it does. You know, I think an individual at any level, whether it's a CEO or, you know, the person at the very bottom of the hierarchy, can manifest that integrity and the commitment to ethics and so forth that makes a very strong statement in the world and is an important statement. Yes? I think one has to be careful when you start um, talking about profit for shareholders or stakeholders because that, that, that becomes kind of political economics rather than substance. Nothing wrong in making a profit for shareholders, mm -hmm. especially if it provides hundreds and thousands of people with right livelihoods. I'm not putting it down. Well, I mean, I have, there's a tilt there, but I, you know, I, I, was, I was hearing. I don't feel bad about that at all. I, I don't feel opposed to the basic capitalistic direction of our society or companies making a profit. As you say, it provides many benefits to workers and uh, their families and their ripple effects. Uh, at one point, uh, my company was moving, my division of Hewlett Packard was moving up to Oregon and I was invited to make the move up there. One of the statistics that they, that they said at the time, I don't know if it's true, is that every job that they brought to the town of Corvallis in Oregon would create five other jobs in that economy. So, so that's, that's terrific. So, um, so the, one of the questions that is, and we tend to always look at service as being mm -hmm. the externalization or the form mm -hmm. of how we spend our time or what we actually do. Um, at least for me, I found that in, in many years in, in business and attempting to find ways to have a spiritual practice in mm -hmm. business, mm -hmm. um, service actually comes from an internal process yep. of, of how to um, address the, the conflicts and the paradoxes mm -hmm. and, and how to come to some form of peace inside oneself and then transmute the patterns that are in the mass consciousness mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. actually where the service occurs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rather than um, looking like one is actually doing something mm -hmm. that is a sort of service, but maybe doing it in a relatively mm -hmm. unconscious way. Mm -hmm. So certainly true. Yeah. There, I'm, there are lots of people in so-called service jobs who may be doing more harm than good. I'm reminded of a book I just read called Angela's Ashes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if any of you have read that. I thought it was a fantastic book. And this poor kid was growing up in a poor section of Ireland in the 1930s. And his teachers, and teachers are supposed to be, you know, educating and bringing out the best in young people, 
um, were so harsh and so abusive and so dismissive that I'm surprised they didn't cripple his spirit entirely. So it's a very useful point. Yes? In practicing a number of these precepts, Mm -hmm. I find it very difficult to protect myself from the demands of the people around me mm-hmm. that I just get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If I'm in a place where mm-hmm. I don't want to make a decision now because I need to sit mm-hmm. with it or watch things evolve, there's, there's a whole way of, of, of communicating that I need to do it in a certain way without yet coming across as, well, and this is mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. Th- there's a whole world of people who just want you to go, right. do, decide, be, get it over with, and get on yeah. to the next thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's, for me, one of the largest challenges to, is to say, not yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's difficult, and this kind of comes down to the question of how do we influence other people around us, and wh- you know, what kind of influence can we have. And I think we have to be realistic that we may not always be able to um, change the outcome of the decision-making process, one of whose decisions is time frame, you know, of the decision. So we can certainly put in our voice of uh, deliberation and call for more uh, uh, time for deliberation, and I think that's usually useful, and realize that sometimes it's going to be a compromise and we may not be able to make that happen. So not to... um, not to think that we aren't having any influence if the decision doesn't always go our way, but just by putting out that request for more uh, pace, a more leisurely deliberation, you may actually be influencing the process in ways that don't make it appear that there's an outright win, but it may be slowing it down somewhat. So it still seems like a good thing to keep doing. And in that way, you're kind of like a brake pad, you know, the wheel's running like this. You're kind of like a brake pad. You might get worn down a little <laughs> doing that over and over, but it's a, the brake pad is an important part of an organization. Yes? When you mentioned timidity, I was really quite struck by that because um, I, I, I work in a public library and um, I'm a manager there. And there is, it has nothing to do with the library, but the timidity factor is a very powerful and strong one, mm-hmm. I think, because the risks are seen as so great. Mm-hmm. So because the, the, the risk area um, and the threat of, of risk is, is, a, is a significant problem, timidity just falls, it just comes to play mm-hmm. much too often. Mm-hmm. And courage doesn't blossom. There's a there's a lot of inertia also in the status quo. Um, the one who begins to even pull, you know, pull interpersonal relationships into the light of awareness in a workplace is is bringing in a threat for many people, because there's often. Um, an unspoken agreement not to talk about interpersonal dynamics in a business setting or a work setting. So that's a risky thing to do. Okay, thank you all for the comments. What I'd like to do um, right now is to take about a 10-minute break. All right, I'd like to talk now about the second uh, part of the Eightfold Path, which is uh, meditation. 
and uh, it has uh, consists of three components, which are right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I don't want to get uh, so detailed on the three aspects, but what I'd like to talk about is the issues of formal practice in the workplace and informal practice in the workplace, because I think they can both be helpful. How many times have you heard meditation teachers say something like this? In the middle of your workday, take three minutes, stop what you're doing, sit there and breathe. How many people have heard an instruction like that? Okay. How many people have done it? Okay, almost as many. How many people make it a regular part of your work life? Okay, two. Thank you. I'd like to come back a little later and ask you all to comment on that. I think it can be a really important part of work life. And when we're looking at the work setting, one of the qualities we need to bring in more than we currently do is the quality of right effort. When you look at the difference between, I'm sure a lot of you have done day-longs of meditation or you've done certainly 45-minute periods of meditation. A lot of you, I know, have done intensive retreats, silent retreats of seven days or longer of meditation. The element in there that's unique when we do the formal practice is the coming back to the present. That we have the intention and we remember to do that again and again and again and again. It's that coming back that does the work. That's what starts the process of change. What happens when we get involved in a workday is we forget to do that. So our workday is not meditation because we're not bringing in that moment-after-moment effort of coming back into the present moment. The best way to make your workday more of a meditation day is to do that more often. Just to remind yourself in more moments to come back to the present and feel what's happening. A real support for that can be just taking a three-minute break in the middle of a busy day putting the phone down, not looking at the computer screen, closing your eyes, and just being with your breath for three minutes. Now, why, among all these smart people who have heard this instruction so many times, are there only two people in this room who do that? I'd like to suggest it's because one reason, one, we forget. Number two, when we stop in the middle of a busy work day, the experience isn't always so pleasant. Because what we find when we stop is we run into that mind that has been cranked up. And we feel the thoughts going through so rapidly. We feel the agitation in the body. And it's not a place we're comfortable hanging out. That, that's been my experience. We don't like to sit in that place of suffering, which is self-created. We have generated that suffering through our own rapid-fire thinking and acting and uh, behavior. So a couple of things to say. One is, how's that thinking ever going to unravel? How's that pressure ever going to release unless we stop and give it time to vent? If you take the time and actually sit through it, whether it's three minutes at your desk or half an hour when you come home from work, you may come home from work and that same thing's still going on and you think, geez, I've wasted this whole sitting period. I've done nothing but think for the whole 30 minutes. It's not a waste. The nice thing is, is that's the mind releasing its pressure. That's what it needs to do sometimes, is just release. So the beautiful thing about taking that time when you come home from work is then you can go into the evening and some of the steam has been let out. 
Similarly in the workplace, if you just take a few minutes and realize you're just going to be letting some of the steam off, you're not going to have that profound samadhi experience that you had on the sixth day of your last ten day at Yucca Valley, you know, where the body dissolved and there was just light, you know, throughout your field of vision. That's probably not going to happen. But in stopping, you let some of the steam out and that's useful. The other thing that's important about that stopping is we actually feel what we're doing to ourselves with the pace of our work. The Buddha uh, said, a number of occasions, he said, there is one thing, my friends, that keeps you bound. That is the not seeing of suffering. When we don't see the extent to which we induce our own suffering in the workplace, we don't have any motivation to change it. If we're going to be serious about taking a more balanced approach, being kinder to ourselves, being a little bit slower in our pace, we have to see the suffering that comes from the push. And the best way to do that is to be right there in the middle of it. So when you take that three-minute break, and now I know everybody's going to go incorporate it, when you take that three-minute break, don't have the idea that you're going to have three minutes of calm, but be willing to experience whatever is there. That's what's in the moment. If you have the idea you're going to go into three minutes of calm, forget it. You're just going to be really frustrated. But that's not what mindfulness is about. Mindfulness is not about having my three minutes of calm. Mindfulness is about feeling what's real. And what's real in this moment is this agitation that's a leftover of the pace. That's what we want to connect with. That's what connects us to the present moment. That is the truth of that moment. So just go ahead and experience that. That's okay. It's going on subconsciously anyway. So I would encourage you to take those moments both as a break and as formal mindfulness practice. The other thing that you can do in the workplace is start to bring formal practice into periods that are not particularly productive. How much time do you spend in meetings just sort of wishing that that person would finish up their rambling harangue and get on with something meaty? During that time, you could be doing something actually useful, which is you could be doing a metta practice. The practice of loving kindness, of directing thoughts, of well-wishing to yourself and those around you is terrific meeting practice. And believe me, you can do plenty of it and still hear every word that's going by. (laughs) We've got that much bandwidth. And it really changes, it can change the flavor of your participation in that meeting. Otherwise, it might just be totally dead time. You can do a practice when you're waiting in a queue. You know, you dash out at lunch and you do some errands and you're waiting at the ATM or you're waiting in the dry cleaners or you're waiting in the supermarket. You can do a practice there. It might be a standing meditation practice where you feel your feet on the ground, connect with your breath. You can do metta in those areas. For a long time, I had a long commute when I was working at Microsoft. I had about an hour and a quarter commute each way. Uh, to work. When I was a sales rep, it wasn't such a bad deal because I'd be out at clients during the day. But when I was a manager and had to be in the office more, I had to be at the same place every day. It was a long drive. For a long time, I tried doing mindfulness practice in my driving. I wasn't very good at it. You know, I couldn't really, for some reason, keep my attention on my arms or keep with my breath. And, but what I found I could do much better was metta practice love the loving-kindness practice of sending these wishes to people around me because I found that in the Bay Area there were always people around me, (laughs) no matter where I went. And so ordinarily I'd be bugged by the guy in front of me who's going too slow or the guy behind me who wants to go too fast 
one of the things I noticed is in any driving situation I found myself, I was the only person who wanted to go the right speed. <laughs> Everybody else was too fast or too slow. And the right speed for me is about 10 miles over the posted speed limit. But I was the only person who was at that speed. So everybody else was basically an irritant to me. They were either in my way or they were trying to get me out of theirs. Doing the metta practice really changed my attitude to it. So I highly recommend that practice to you. When you have to go for a walk, you're walking from your office down to the photocopier. You could take that as the one time a day you do walking meditation. Don't try to do walking meditation everywhere you go. That You're not going to enjoy it enough to do that. But pick one path that you traverse over and over again and just say to yourself, when I do this path, I'm going to do walking meditation. And that means you just experience the feeling in your feet and legs as you walk. That's going to be your project during that time. So just to find little ways to bring in the practice in the work situation just brings in more reminders of the life of Dharma and brings that little bit more uh, calm and attention to our experience. But I feel by far the, the vaster field of practice in work uh, is in the area of relationships and uh, probably the more important area in work. Uh, relationships to others uh, and relationships within ourselves. And basically what normally happens in the workplace is that some communication, whether it's a phone call or a meeting with a colleague or something a client says or whatever, triggers off reactions in us. And these reactions are often difficult for us to be with. It might be a sense of fear. It uh, might be a sense of feeling uh, belittled or embarrassed. It might be a sense of anger. It might be a sense of desire. You know, you walk down the hallway, somebody says, God, I can't wait to tell you. The boss just came in and gave me a 10% pay raise. And you know your pay raise this last period was 6%, you know, and you're supposed to be happy for them. So desire, you know, might stimulate wanting a pay raise yourself, whatever. These qualities are an equal part of the meditational work and probably the more profound part of our meditational work in the work setting. So there are many, many tapes from all the different teachers of Vipassana about how to relate with anger, how to relate with desire, how to relate with fear. I'm not going to cover that basic ground today. It's very important ground. It's central ground, but I don't want to cover it here. You get that from a lot of other places. But what I want to encourage you to do is to take that as part of your meditation practice. So really learn how to work with the experiences of these difficult emotions, which in the classical tradition we call the hindrances. These are the forces that oppose clarity, and they're forces that come in again and again and again in a work setting and in our outside life. So really kind of a question is, do we have the courage again to be with these states of mind? It's difficult to be with the agitation of the fast pace, perhaps the restlessness of that. It's also difficult to be with these states. And I want to encourage the development in this area of what we might call courage, which is the willingness to feel them. That's all it starts with, is just the willingness to feel them. Or what Chogyam Trungpa, the Tibetan teacher, called fearlessness. So I'd like to read you about a little bit from Trungpa. This is a book called Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior, on relating with fear, and fearlessness. 
Fear has to be acknowledged. We have to realize our fear and reconcile ourselves with fear. We should look at how we move, how we talk, how we conduct ourselves, how we chew our nails, how we sometimes put our hands in our pockets uselessly. Then we will find something out about how fear is expressed in the form of restlessness. We must face the fact that fear is lurking in our lives, always, in everything we do. On the other hand, acknowledging fear is not a cause for depression or discouragement. Because we possess such fear, we also are potentially entitled to experience fearlessness. True fearlessness is not the reduction of fear, but going beyond fear. Unfortunately, in the English language, we don't have one word that means that. Fearlessness is the closest term, but by fearless we don't mean less fear, but beyond fear. Going beyond fear begins when we examine our fear, our anxiety, our nervousness, concern, and restlessness. We must look into our fear and look beneath its veneer. Meditation is the tool for doing that. And the meditation that we learn on our cushion that lets us contact those feelings as we're just sitting is the same mind that we then want to take into the workplace and to feel the fear when it arises and to know it as fear, to feel the anger when it arises and know it as anger, and to let ourselves feel that as part of ourselves, not to disown it or say it shouldn't be happening. As the medit, Let me back up a sec. When I first uh, was working in uh, the corporate world, I didn't have the support of meditation. I felt often overwhelmed. Of course, what I felt overwhelmed by were my own feelings. That's all that can really overwhelm us. It's not what the corporation does. It's our reactions in that setting. As I um, gained more uh, stability of mind through meditation, I no longer felt overwhelmed in those settings. And it was because one of the primary things that meditation develops is the quality that we call samadhi. Samadhi is usually translated as concentration. This is a little bit misleading. In the West, when we say concentration, we mean, I'm going to focus on this and I want to ignore everything else. There's an exclusive sense in the way we use the word concentration. But samadhi doesn't have that exclusive sense. Samadhi, as the Buddha talked about it, means a mind that is whole. It means a mind that has become collected in its, in its attention and in its energy. And when the mind becomes collected, then it has a tremendous strength. It has a firmness, it has a steadiness, it has a stability. So when, for instance, you sit down and you try to pay attention with your breath, Sometimes you'll find you're able to connect with quite a few breaths in a row. Sometimes you'll find you're just with one breath and then the mind is away. With one breath and the mind is away. This quality of being able to uh, keep the attention where you want it is a sign of increasing samadhi. <coughs> so that's kind of the way you can tell when it's there. But the, um, the felt experience of it is that the mind feels very strong and stable. And it's that uh, inner strength that lets us be in a difficult environment where our emotions are being stretched and not feel like we're, we're victimized, not feel like we're being overwhelmed by it. So in these three areas of ethical conduct, meditation, and wisdom, if in the workplace the primary feeling is one of vulnerability and fear of being overwhelmed, then the element that needs development is samadhi. And that's through the formal 
practice of meditation, that's what can give that, that kind of strength. One of the aspects of samadhi, when it's well established and the mind becomes strong, it actually, this factor actually prevents difficult states of mind from arising or arising with any real strength. It's said in, in the classical jargon that samadhi suppresses the hindrances. So when that stability of mind is there, the upsets can't enter. Can't, if they do arise even, they can't really grab a hold and dominate. So that's one aspect. The um, formal practice through moments of mindfulness or metta, the informal practice of being with the hindrances, being with the difficult emotions in all their forms, the effort of coming back together. The other thing I think it's important to talk about, and I heard this topic in a couple of the small groups, is the whole area of simplicity. What is the balance in our life between work and practice? How much time do we give to one? How much time do we give to other? the other? Do we have the, uh, the idea that we can enter into an 80-hour work week or a 100-hour work week and come home and be well-balanced? Because I question that. I think that uh, for many, many years, these teachings were preserved by uh, monastics, by nuns and monks who led very, very simple lives, and that that was for a reason. I think that there's a reason that, um, you know, perhaps the Dalai Lama doesn't have a wife, three kids, two cars, a big home in the suburbs, and uh, acting as the head of a large corporation. I think there's a reason for that. That's not to say that as lay people we can't work with these practices. But I think as lay people, it's really important that we take a look at the balance in our lives between work and practice. In our terms, I would talk about this as simplicity. And it doesn't have anything to do with being poor. It has to do with having um, enough leisure time that your mind can actually settle. And whether it's settling through formal practice or whether it's settling through doing things that you enjoy, not so, not so important. But finding uh, some leisure time so the mind can settle a bit. In the classical terms, this quality is talked about as renunciation. And the purpose of renunciation is not some moralistic ideal that being poor is better or having no relationships is better. It's a way of keeping the mind less cluttered. Because when the mind is less cluttered, it can penetrate more deeply into life and it can grow wisdom more easily. So it's a question that every, every person needs to look at and discover for themselves. Um, different people have really different tolerances for complexity than other people. This is some advice from the Dalai Lama. It's from a book called Awakening the Mind, Enlightening the Heart. Practicing the Dharma does not mean you have to give up your profession or do away with your possessions. There are various levels of practice according to individual ability and mental disposition. Everyone cannot renounce the world and meditate in the mountains. This is not practical. How long could we survive? We would soon starve. We need farmers to grow food, and we need as well the support of the business community. People in all trades and professions can work honestly and conscientiously without contradicting the Dharma. In this way, they serve the community and help the overall economy. I usually advise people to devote half their time to the affairs of life and half their time to the practice of the teachings. This, I think, 
is a balanced approach for most people. Wow. I usually don't advise people like that because I'd probably be laughed off the podium. But this is advice from the Dalai Lama. It's not to say that it, each of us has to do that, but it just might be an encouragement to look at where we've drawn that balance line in our life and think about other ways to approach it. 50-50. What would that look like in your life? Could you even imagine that? That's a challenge. So there's something of a question about um, how do you make the trade-offs in your life between uh, practice, your spiritual life, and uh, your work commitments. And then also, of course, in that same level of importance come the family commitments. How do you balance those three? It's a difficult question. When I was working at Microsoft, I got two weeks of vacation a year. And uh, the first time I got my first week of vacation, I went on an intensive retreat. I signed up for the old students' retreat at Santa Sabina. I was going to do a week and then come back all charged up. I got about three days into it, and I realized that after that pressured life I'd been living, you know, for about the past year, I didn't want a bunch of bells telling me what I had to do that day either. <laughs> and, you know, just going through this very demanding schedule with all these people around and queuing up for food, it was not what I wanted. I put my retreat practice aside for five years. And I'm a retreat junkie. I'm a big-time retreat junkie. I love life in retreat. I've spent probably three years of my life in retreat over different times. I put it aside for five years because it wasn't what I wanted in my two weeks of vacation a year. So one of the ways we can make this balance is by doing work for a while, you know, really full on, and then doing Dharma for a while more full on or moving into a less work, more dharma kind of balance. So it's not we have to establish this 50-50 balance today, but to give some thought to how in our life we can find ways uh, to bring in the dharma practice more, ways to bring that balance about. Okay, I think that's all that I want to say right now about um, meditation as uh, it relates to the work environment. Again, the important pieces are balance between spiritual life and work life, formal practice in the work setting and finding ways to do that, and the informal practice of relating to our own uh, inner life, the own emotional life. Okay. Questions or comments? Please. question. When the Dalai Lama is saying 50% work and 50% practice, by practice does he mean meditation? Well, the way he understands, I think he said practicing the teachings. So I think for him, study is also a way of practicing the teachings. Um, meditation practice uh, is another way. Hearing the teachings is a way. So I think all of that would come into it for him. But not, not some kind of incorporation practice work. He doesn't mean that necessarily. No, no. I think it's, you know, he, he, it's fine to separate you know, the work life over here and the practice life over here. Well, study I, and com comes under that also, uh -huh, or hearing the teachings. In the work life, is that where we include family? No. I, that, that's why, that's why <laughs> sometimes it is hard work. But that's why, that's why I added that on as a third one. You know, when I talked about establishing. <laughs> that's an important one, too. 
But I think the balance, really, as we talk about it, comes between family life, work life, and practice. So there's even more. Yeah. And that's why I say I don't think you should think of this of applying it 50% of every day has to be practice. Yes, Nancy. I wanted to comment, since you raised the issue of the, the daily stopping, and it turns out Mary and I, I guess, mm-hmm. um, because I started doing it during a period of great difficulty, mm-hmm. and, and actually it was a Dharma teacher who suggested I get a clock, you know, watch mm. the sound of the hour, mm-hmm. which, mm. you know, the bane of my existence, people who don't turn off their right. watches. Right, their beeper watches. And what surprised me, you, know, you said that you find that you, are, you have to be with the uncomfortable feelings, mm-hmm. but what I also found was often there weren't uncomfortable things. Mm-hmm. So I had this idea mm-hmm. that my life was very... So I think what we're going to do is skip the small discussion groups on this topic of meditation, the formal meditation. Um, I don't know how much uh, there is to say about that anyway. And spend just a few more minutes on that topic in the large group. And one of the things that I wanted to say is um, for people who work with uh, your hands, you can actually use you know, virtually all of your work time as formal meditation practice. And the way to do that is just keep your attention in touch with the sensations in your body as you're working. So in touch with your arms and the sensations in your hands and let that be your primary uh, focus of attention. So if you're doing body work, for instance, on a client, if you're doing carpentry, if you're doing gardening, you need to give a little bit of attention, obviously, to the task, but there's quite a bit of free attention that you can put in a formal meditation direction. So that's highly encouraged and it's something you can also use in meetings. Just keep the attention focused in the body. What I thought might be interesting to talk about now in the group is to um, put together kind of the first two things that we've had, which is right speech and right action and ethics in general, with these difficult emotions that come in in the workplace, which is the field of of meditation, and uh, talk about a question that uh, often comes up, which is how do we deal with a difficult person at work? And almost everybody that I talk to has got one somewhere, one of these difficult people. Um, For myself, I had a manager who I felt was being very uh, restrictive on me. I had uh, gotten an email from a friend at corporate asking about what kind of computers I thought the technical support people in the field sales offices needed. And so I wrote back a long email that said, uh, well, I don't think our current specs are entirely adequate, and uh, this is what I think the spec should be for our computer systems. And I sent that back to this person, and they sent it around to a few other people. And somehow my manager got copied on that mail. And uh, the decisions on, on computers are, were made at a district level, but out of corporate recommendations. And uh, my manager thought that I was being insulting uh, to their uh, specification and support by it. And so she you know, called me into the office, read me the riot act, said, don't you ever send email to that person again. You know, I don't want your comments on this office going out across this whole corporation. And I tried to explain to her I was simply answering a mail that someone had sent me. But uh, she didn't see it that way at all. And I got so angry. I held, I held my temper and I bit my tongue and I got... But I, I, said my, I said what I felt about it, which was that I thought that was unfair, that it was very important for us to communicate with other people and our peers, and she wouldn't have any of it. So 
left the meeting. I was very angry. I, just, I went to the basement in the parking garage, and I just stormed around up and down the aisles of the garage for a while, just really angry. And uh, when I calmed, and calmed back down enough to come back in, I just picked up working again. But I had a very rocky relationship with that person for uh, quite a long time, from my side, mainly around this incident. Looking back now, I think there was a trust issue there that I just didn't see at the time. I didn't see, oh, she doesn't trust me. And um, looking back, I could see some earlier incidents. Now I understand. But uh, for a long time, I just, I just did not have a good relationship with the person. And we all probably have stories like that. So I'm just wondering, I'd kind of be interested in hearing from people who have had difficulties with co-workers, uh, with managers, uh, could be with customers, how, how you found skillful ways to deal with that uh, situation. Any stories to share? Yes. This earlier, um, and so I might as well uh, share the story. Mm -hmm. was, um, I, I worked for a woman who was verbally abusive. Mm. And, um, she <clears throat> she never really took off after me, but she uh, she would uh, hit on our secretary quite a bit. Mm. We share a secretary, and um, she would be sarcastic, um, critical. You know, just use that that tone of voice that that. Mm -hmm. And I, when I first started working there, I, um, I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do about this? I, I can't just ignore this. It, it, you know, I have to do something. But um, I was also new in my job mm -hmm, <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, wasn't sure how to go about uh, giving that kind of feedback to my boss. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I decided to do, and it, it took a long time for me to, to decide what to do about it, I decided to support our secretary in strengthening her own response. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would encourage her to, um, you know, when she would complain to me about mm -hmm. the boss, I would say, well, you know, have, have you thought about just saying, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't speak to me that way. Or, um, And I also decided to be a, a model, and so any time that uh, this woman would start that tone mm -hmm. with me, mm -hmm. I would... I would just stop it right mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's been five years now, and mm. it almost never happens anymore. Wow. And I don't know whether I had anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. but, uh, um, it, it, certainly, I think everybody's, everybody's a, little, a little happier in that situation. Yeah, that's beautiful. It, it makes such a difference. I mean, you could just imagine how you know, the secretary would feel when she goes home after a day like that. I mean, she could be devastated for days. So that kind of intervention sounds really skillful and sounds like it's really made a difference in people's lives. Thank you. Other ways people have found to deal with the difficult person? Uh-huh. Um, I was just writing down a few uh, descriptions of a man that I was working for mm -hmm. a couple of years. He was restrictive, punitive, dismissive, unresponsive, uncooperative, and unsupportive, among other things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was really, really difficult for me. And I tried every skillful means I could think of, and nothing worked. I mean, I just wasn't at a level to deal with it at all. Mm -hmm. So I just suffered. And during this period, I was doing a lot of driving, and I had a couple of tapes from Carolyn Mace. Mm -hmm. And Carolyn Mace 
had this one page where she discussed the function of Judas in Christianity. And her conclusion was that Judas was responsible in a way for the Savior because he had to die to be um, resurrected. And she said, so if there's a really, really terrible person in your life, thank that person as your Savior. And that was the only thing I could think of doing. Mm. So I did it. And mm. it was incredibly transformative. Mm. It just changed everything. Because every time he did something horrible, I didn't say it out loud, but I thanked him internally. Yeah. And there was always a response, mm. an internal response that helped me. Mm. And eventually it helped me right out of there. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. But when I yeah. got out of there, I was done. I, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had done it. I had... Mm -hmm taken what I needed to take and gotten what I needed to get. Yeah. So that, I thought that was, uh, that's always seemed to me to be very um, useful. Well, that's beautiful. Um, and these two different answers really show the two different avenues that we can go in working with a difficult person. One is the direct outer communication. The other is the inner transformation. And sometimes it may be helpful to do both. Sometimes there may only be one that's open to us. There are sometimes, I, I think there are some difficult people in the work situation you just can't talk to. That's been my experience. And to try to would only compound the problem. So then if that avenue is closed, then the inner transformation is the only one. The um, kind of gratitude that you're feeling uh, is exactly the way the Dalai Lama talked about feeling toward the Chinese, who came in um, killed hundreds of thousands of monks and nuns, tortured people, uh, reduced the Tibetan population from about 7 million to 6 million in the years of their occupation. And the Dalai Lama says something like, we need to be grateful to our enemy, and he used that word, it's a strong word, because they teach us patience. He said, how else would I have learned patience if it hadn't been for the presence of my enemy? That's a very difficult kind of appreciation to come to, but if you can find that or develop that as a way of practice, I think it can be really powerful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. There's another situation where you don't necessarily have to deal with it alone. Mm -hmm. I had a new mm -hmm. manager at a time when I was very depleted, and she was the opposite of help because she didn't mm -hmm. know diddly. And she was also mm -hmm. extremely anxious, so instead of being supportive, mm -hmm. at least emotionally, she was adding to the burden by micromanaging and being, mm -hmm. you know, saying things that were so ignorant that they mm -hmm. felt insulting. Mm -hmm. And luckily, I had one other person that I could go to. Mm -hmm. I was in very bad shape mm -hmm. emotionally, mm -hmm. kind of in combination of, you know, my work situation and that mm -hmm. person. And I had somebody that I could tell mm -hmm, the truth mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I really felt psychologically that this, this was character stuff with this person and I saw mm -hmm, absolutely mm -hmm. no chance for mm -hmm. help. But the good news is we had mm -hmm. a healthy person mm -hmm. that I could talk to mm -hmm. and he uh, did research kind of amongst all the people mm -hmm. that were working for this person and found that my feelings were universal. Mm -hmm. And what is amazing is that I was dead wrong about this person's ability to change. Mm -hmm. That she was tasked with talking with all of us about mm -hmm. what our needs were. Mm -hmm. And I was pleased that I could tell her the truth compassionately. Mm -hmm. 
And this woman meets all my needs now. Wow. And I really, it's like a miracle to me. And that doesn't mean I think she's perfect. I mean, she's a human and she could be better in some things. But as far as really Hmm. being a support and being a strategic resource at Mm -hmm. times, she Mm -hmm. really is. Hmm. Amazing. That's terrific. Well, it sounds like a healthy organization. In some ways. Okay. (laughs) Good. So looking for allies, especially people with influence and uh, willingness to use it. Good. That's a beautiful story. Thank you. Others? Yeah, Nancy? I have worked with someone for years, and he and I have had a pattern of conflict for mm-hmm. years. And I have, he can, for a long time, he could do nothing right in my mind, and probably I the same. And at one point I was doing an explicit practice of generosity every day doing mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of the things about him that bothered me is that he speaks at length. It takes him half an hour to say good morning. <laughs> so he started this one day, and I said, as my practice of generosity, kind of thought through my schedule and I said, I can stay here until he finishes. And I listened. And there had been a meeting that I had heard about and I'd already heard the other side of the story and he had, in my mind, done his usual screw up. And he started telling me about the story, about the meeting. He told me about the meeting. He told me the background of the meeting. He told me the background of the background and he finally got to how hurt he was Hmm. at all of this. Hmm. And suddenly he was a human being. Mm. And all of these years, mm. I had kept him as the bad guy. Wow. And suddenly what I heard was different. Mm. Um, so I couldn't hold him at a distance anymore. Mm. And then he did something that I actually did appreciate. Mm. And I ran into him in the stairwell, and without even thinking of it, I said, I really appreciate what you did. Mm. Well, we now talk. Mm. Wow. And, and he doesn't talk at great length. Wow. And he was disrespectful of everyone, including me, or so I thought. He is now much more respectful. Hmm. And I think it was this mutual disrespect that was feeding mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. another. Hmm. And one of the things that, that irritated me is that he would do things. I thought he had very bad judgment, and mm-hmm. he would do things. And then I would have to kind of backpedal and you know, resolve the problems he had created. And the other day he called me and he said, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Wow. That's fantastic. It brings up a few different thoughts. For me, there's this, um, there's this lovely saying uh, by Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching where he says, if you want to shrink something, you must first let it expand. And that really seems true with people who have a compulsive need to talk. Um, I think, as you say, there... What I've noticed is a lot of those people feel very isolated. And um, it's a way of making some kind of connection or putting their story out. And if, as you have said, if you do give it the space, it takes away some of the need for that to happen. That's, that's beautiful. The other thing that I really appreciate in your story is the connection to the humanity. Uh, a lot of you probably know that when we do the loving kindness practice, we start with the people that we feel close to ourselves, friends, loved ones, and then we move to people we don't know, and then we move to people that we have a difficult time with. We call them, classically, the enemy or the difficult person. Well, one of the things that uh, the metta practice does as you develop it, it helps you see, you can't do the metta practice without seeing what's lovable in each person. That's basically the focus of the metta practice. You just find out what's lovable in the person and therefore why you can feel friendly to them. So even in doing a difficult person, we're almost forced to see, oh, 
what's likable in that person in doing the metta practice? You know, how would, how would this person's mother see them, for instance? And so I think that's a very skillful thing to do with someone who's a difficult person at work. Just to keep in mind, where's their humanity? You know, how would, how would this person's mother see them? And it can, cha- it can really change our relationship. Thank you. Any other difficult person stories? Okay, well, those were, those were all really terrific. They all illustrated something different, and uh, mo- the movement within each one was really, it's actually inspiring. So oh, thank you. Okay. The conflict? <laughs> or? No, no, the whole episode, the whole situation, what, until it started to, to change. What was over a period of months from when mm-hmm. that first conversation where I really listened to him? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's cool. Okay, so I thought I would talk now a bit about uh, the third area of the Eightfold Path, which is wisdom in the work situation. And then uh, we will move into uh, some group discussion and then small discussion groups. There are two aspects of wisdom in uh, the Buddha's teachings. The first is right view, or sometimes called right understanding. And the second is right intention, or motivation, or aspiration. It's like the attitude underlying our actions. Why do we do the actions we do? So I I think that first it would be appropriate to talk about right intention in relation to our work. And it poses the basic question, why do we work? Why do we work? And I think it's really important that that uh, intention in us be understood clearly because it's really the background for everything we do in work. In the teachings of the Buddha, this quality of intention or motivation is so important because it is the seed of karma. When the intention is wholesome, then it's said, the action that comes from it is wholesome, and the results of a wholesome action are wholesome in our lives. So if we can set our intention straight in the beginning with an action, then it, uh, it unfolds in a wholesome way and the fruits of that action come back to us in a wholesome way. So this really is the, the nub of it. Uh, Tibetans have a saying that everything rests on the tip of motivation. This is true in work as well. But to, before we answer that question, I just want to back up one more time and look at why do we practice. So to get sort of a fundamental direction in our life of motivation. And uh, there's this lovely saying of the Buddha's that you've probably all heard, where he says, not to harm others, to help others if you can, and to purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Not to harm, but to help, and to purify our own minds. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. I really think of this as forming the basic aspiration or direction of Dharma practice, these, these three aspects. So when I think about right intention as it applies to work, I connect these three areas to it. Not to harm, to help if we can, and to use work to purify our own hearts. So some of the, um, just some of the motivations that come to mind that fit in this, uh, in this wise intention first of all, is to provide the requisites for ourselves and our families. That's part of helping 
ourselves and our families. And the requisites in the Buddhist sense are very clearly defined. They are food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. These are the four things that the community of monks and nuns was always supposed to have access to, always said to need access to. Food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. Those are wholesome motivations. The motivation might be simply because we enjoy the work. You know, it lets us use our talents, and we have fun doing that. That's a wholesome motivation. It might be directly because we think we can benefit others or benefit the world through our work. So this attitude of non-harming and the attitude of helping. It might be that, uh, and this is one one of the real benefits I see in the work arena, and I've known a lot of people including myself, who have tried to avoid the work arena at times in their life. Sometimes I see people avoiding the arena of work for many, many years because the conflicts that they feel around it are too severe. But I feel what, is, what, what people miss out on when they do that is the chance to develop confidence. Confidence and self-esteem. So I think the workplace is actually a great ground for developing this trust in ourselves. And confidence is sometimes talked about in Buddhist terms with the word confidence, sometimes in the word trust, sometimes in the word faith. And I think all those qualities come to play from developing ourselves through work. So I think it can be an area where we honestly develop a deeper faith in life and a deeper faith in ourselves. And faith is then what really allows for surrender. So these are healthy reasons for being involved in work. But what are some of the unhealthy ones? Basically, I would say it is, again, when the project of self or the project of ego gets involved in our work situation that the motivation can go astray. So the reason becomes not some of the wholesome reasons that we mentioned, and I'm sure there are others, but that work is used to aggrandize our sense of self or aggrandize the ego in some way or another. And I'm sure you've seen this in people who take jobs as sort of defining themselves, and as they grow in status or power, their ego just gets grander and grander, and they become more and more of a pain to people around them. That's the kind of unhealthy uh, motivation of work. Because those kinds of approaches, if we're using status or power or wealth to build up or inflate our sense of ourselves, that only creates more separation. It doesn't let us see the interconnectedness. It builds separateness. And actually, of course, Dharma practice can be used in the same way. You know, well, I'm a practitioner or I'm a Buddhist, so, you know, therefore I'm better than the people who aren't practicing or better than the non-Buddhists or you know, better than the Nam-myoho, Renge-kyo Buddhists, or whatever. Um, But hopefully within our meditation practice are the tools to see through that kind of pride, to see through that kind of comparison. But in the work world, usually those tools of questioning, of investigation, of paring away the unwholesome, aren't built in. So we kind of have to do that work ourselves. The Buddha said that there are eight concerns 
that tend to move the mind in an unhealthy direction that he called the, un, uh, he called the eight worldly concerns. So this is distinguished from what you might call right intention or right motivation. These are ones that lead us astray. And the eight worldly concerns are, four, are in four pairs. And they are concerns with pleasure and pain, with loss and gain, with praise and blame, and with fame and disrepute. I'll just say them again because I know some people want to write it down. Pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, fame and ill repute. Now, it's not that there's anything wrong with any of these items. We all experience the alternation of these qualities in our lives. And it's not like, oh, you've got your life wrong if there's blame, you know, if somebody's criticizing you if um, there's pain in your life. It's not that you've got it wrong. These things go up and down for all of us. But it's if we get attached to these as the primary direction of our life that our motivation goes off to the side. These things come in the process of living. They come in the process of developing a livelihood. Sometimes they come in on a huge scale. You know, somebody said last week that Bill Gates was worth $45 billion now. The way Microsoft stock is at its current price levels, $45 billion. But he says it's not about the money. So. So it's not that these issues are wrong in and of themselves in any way, but it's uh, clinging to, being driven by or obsessed by these results that bring suffering. It's when we get tied to these outcomes as proof of our life or validation of ourselves that we suffer as a result. So it's just helpful, I find it helpful to keep these in mind and to keep checking how much am I being driven by praise or blame? Am I doing something because I want a certain amount of personal glory from it or am I doing it because I want the actual outcome? Am I, invest, am I investing in a job that doesn't have much inner meaning for me, but that has the promise of a lot of wealth? Or am I doing it because I honestly love what I do, and if the wealth comes, the wealth comes? So in a way, you know, if you set your direction in life as being to follow the teachings of the Buddha, not to harm, to help others, and to purify the mind, then that in itself is a safeguard against sort of being consumed by the eight worldly concerns. But frankly, if you don't have this kind of orientation, which comes from a, a spiritual, at least a humanist bent, then it's very difficult not to be consumed by the eight worldly concerns. And you can look at what's going on in Silicon Valley to get a sense of that. The huge amount of wealth that's being generated by high-tech startups and one report that I read not long ago said that um, the, the people who have gotten rich off entrepreneurship in our generation have done less for charity uh, than most former generations have done. It may be because people are still young and haven't gotten to that level yet. Um, yet there seems to be a lot, as I've seen it in Silicon Valley, of wealth for the sake of wealth for the sake of huge houses and multiple cars and private jets that um, go beyond what, what is needed. 
So in a way, having a Dharma orientation while living in the world means, and this is kind of a trite phrase, means being in the world but not of it. Because the world is basically fabricated, the societal mainstream is basically fabricated out of these concerns. So to be uh, at work and at play in the world and not be dominated by these concerns is a different strategy. And letting go of these is essentially letting go of clinging to ego. If our work really is to reduce the element of self and self-concern in our life, in our livelihood, then the eight worldly concerns are what draw us in again and again to the constellation of self in the work world. So they're very useful pointers for keeping our motivation pure and direct. And again, it's a lifetime practice. It's not something that we do overnight. But our motivation purifies, just like all the other spokes of the Eightfold Path purify over practice. Just as our mindfulness purifies, just as our um, uh, wisdom purifies, just as our ethics purify, so also our motivation and intention purify as our Dharma practice develops. Okay, there's one other aspect of uh, wisdom, which is right view, that I also wanted to mention. And, you know, I think it's, there's kind of an attitude that I tried to carry, and I've heard it expressed a lot today, that in the work setting, people are more important than organizational ends. People are really the means of an organization, and I think they're more important than the ends. So I, when I was at Microsoft, I wasn't... Uh, terribly overt about being a Buddhist. But what I tried to do was to really tune into the well-being of everybody there. And so I would, I would go out of my way to drop by people's desks and just kind of check in on how people were doing in their work, if they had complaints about their manager, in their home life, the people who worked for me, I knew something about their home life and relationships. And I thought that was an important part of being there. Um, I've I always wanted people to feel that there was an ear, a sympathetic ear in that office somewhere. And it's kind of interesting because nobody, nobody uh, while I was there showed very much interest in meditation at all. It's quite interesting. I made some good friendships while I worked at Microsoft. And at most, I think I got two people to come to a Monday night one night when Jack was talking. And uh, that was about it. But I was very touched because after I left, uh, three different couples, once they knew what I was doing after I left, my, I left Microsoft five years ago, they asked me to perform their weddings. And so that, I thought that was really sweet, that there, you know, there was a connection there. Another wholesome intention that you can bring to the workplace, then, is what I'd call the bodhisattva spirit, which is to be in the workplace to listen to people's difficulties, to be in the workplace to draw out where people are having trouble. You know, that can be a big motivation and a big intention in being there. They talk about great teachers as being a wish-fulfilling gem who bring to each person that they meet exactly what that person needs. Imagine what a blessing it would be in a workplace if there were that kind of wish-fulfilling gem. The other thing that happens when there's one person in an organization that everybody really likes that exerts a tremendous unifying force. That's, that's one way to build a team. That's the reason leaders can be so important in organizations. 
Because if everybody loves one person, it draws the whole group together. Love has that unifying influence. So what is it in our relationships with people in our workplace that we can bring out that quality of love with them with? And if that's there, it can really change the workplace, even if we're not the leader or the manager. So can we be a bodhisattva in our place of work? Can we be there to love other people and to listen to their difficulties? The only thing that limits that is our own development. It just, if we're not able to do that, it just means we haven't learned to love enough ourselves. And so then that's where our practice is. That's where our practice is, to grow enough that we can love the people we work with. Okay. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the specifics then uh, around the eight worldly concerns. And one of them obviously is money, which has come up a couple of times this morning. It's such a charged issue. And it's not just in our culture, but it may be more in our culture because we've got more of it. First, I want to clarify a little about the Buddhist attitude to money. I think that there are some, uh, there's the possibility of getting very different messages about money from the Buddhist tradition because the nuns and monks are in some ways held up as the ideals of Buddhist practice and they take vows of poverty. They take vows of poverty and they take vows of celibacy. So somehow, you know, this might kind of wear off and people get the idea, well, it's better if you're a Buddhist if you're a poor Buddhist. You know, God forbid you should be a Buddhist with some resources. And best of all would be if you had absolutely nothing. The Buddha set up their life for monastics as a way to really uh, allow total focus on Dharma practice. And for some people, that's a beautiful, beautiful lifestyle. For most of us in the West at this point, it's not unfolding that way. And most of us uh, who are teaching and most of us who are practicing are lay people. So the Buddha talked about money very differently with lay people. And basically what he said with lay people is um, wealth is the result of generosity. There's a karmic connection between the generous acts that we've made in the past and the abundance that we experience today in our lives. And he said that there is um, great value in having wealth if it is used for the purpose of enriching the Dharma. So if wealth is taken and used to positive ends, it's a very, very positive force. Uh, individually, for the people who are doing again, it's another opportunity to be generous, and uh, for the people who are receiving its benefits. The relationship between the monastics and the lay people in, Bud in Buddhism was set up so that the monastics needed to depend on the support of lay people. As a, as a monastic in our tradition in Theravadan countries like Thailand, you can't keep food overnight. That means you, if I, when I was a monk, if I wanted to go and practice someplace that was way away from villages and from people who were working, from farmers and lay people, I couldn't do it because I'd starve. So the Buddha set it up so that monks and nuns had to live near villages so that they could go and um, collect their morning meal by begging from those villages. Therefore, it, the survival of the monastics depends on the wealth of the community around them, the wealth and the generosity. Spirit Rock exists only through the, through the generosity of many, many people. 
Some people who don't have very much money, some people who have a medium amount of money, some people who have a lot of money. So Spirit Rock is only here because we've been blessed with generous gifts from wealthy people, as well as people who don't have all that much. But the Buddha felt, you know, what was important is to keep the proper perspective on money. And so he said, he said uh, this is a paraphrase because I don't have the exact source with me. He said, of small concern for a practitioner is an increase in wealth. Of great concern is an increase in wisdom. Of small concern is a decrease in wealth. Of great concern is a decrease in wisdom. And in the Buddhist tradition, wisdom is often spoken of as the wealth of a practitioner, the true wealth of a practitioner. So with money, there are all these questions that come up you know, in relation to work. How much money is enough? How much do I need? Am I going to run out? Am I getting what I'm worth? Is somebody else getting more than me? What do I do with the money I have? How much can I uh, spend on myself and my own pleasures? How much do I really need to put to uh, other causes, to helping other people, to charitable uses? There are so many uh, misconceptions and strong feelings around money that it's often hard to have clarity about it. But it is uh, one of the eight worldly concerns that uh, is important to monitor. Another one I think is a really interesting one is around um, responsibility and fear of failure or fear of blame. This is something that comes up in work a lot because, you know, basically what we're paid for is to take responsibility. You don't hire somebody unless you're going to give them a chunk of work, the output of which they are responsible for. So how does that feel? When you have a chunk of responsibility for a major piece of work, how does that feel? It can be a real burden, can't it? Because if we screw up, a lot of people are going to know about it. It's going to be really obvious in a lot of cases whether we succeed or not. Sometimes we don't want any more responsibility just because we don't want any more visibility. I definitely felt that way at Microsoft. I felt that um, the, the road was open for me to go much higher on the corporate, not much higher, I shouldn't say that, some higher on the corporate ladder than I went, but I didn't want to do it. Because the higher up you go, the more visible you are. And the more visible you are, the more praise and blame you get. And I was quite comfortable with my current level of praise and blame. I wasn't making a lifelong career out of it. And I basically, to a certain extent, I hid in the organization for a while because I didn't want to deal with any more praise and blame. So that was a reflection probably both of my wisdom to some extent and also of my fear. You know, maybe I would have grown more if I'd been in a more visible position. I don't know. But I think it was both those um, qualities in me. The bottom line, you know, the way to be free in this area is something that Krishna uh, told his charioteer Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita when he said, uh, the way to freedom in this world is to act without attachment to the fruits of your action. And I think this is a deep spiritual teaching. The way to freedom is to act without attachment to the fruits of your actions. This is really difficult to carry out, but this is another way of saying that the eight worldly concerns shouldn't drive us. 
So this is kind of, in a way, the, the essence of right effort in our work and in our Dharma practice. In our meditation practice, we want to pay attention, but then we don't know what will result. We have to pay attention and just trust that mindfulness leads to wholesome states. But we, we can't force that. In our work also, we make our right effort, but we really can't control the results. When I was a sales rep, I, would, I used to get nervous before some presentations I'd make because there was potentially a lot of money on the table. If the customer brought, bought from us, it could mean millions and millions of dollars of income. And a lot of it might be influenced by one or two presentations. Um, if we lost it, you know, it would be clear. I was the account rep, I lost the account. So I felt that responsibility. But what I started to realize is I couldn't control the outcome of the customer's decision. All I could do was do the best presentation that I could. And the way I really got that lesson actually was from sports. I play tennis. And, I, you know, it's really clear, some days I can go out and I can be playing really well and I'm going to get beaten because the other guy is just too good. So I go into a match and I realize I can't control whether I win or lose. The only thing that's under my control is whether I play my best game. So this has been a really helpful reshaping to me of right effort. It's just to play my best game. And then if I win, that's great. If I lose, that's too bad. I can't control that. But what I can do is play my best game. And if I play it without fearing the result, it goes better. I play better. I present better. I think about this a lot at Spirit Rock. Um, Deborah Urban is with us today. Deborah, you want to just raise a hand so people know who you are? Deborah's just joined staff as our development director, and she has the uh, lofty assignment of trying to fundraise the rest of the money we need to finish the meditation hall, which you all probably saw up there on the hill at lunchtime. We've got about another $1.3 million to go, you know, hopefully by the end of this year. Well, um, organizationally, Deborah has some responsibility for that. But if Deborah felt that she had to control the outcome, of making sure that we got that money, she'd probably go crazy. So I want to say publicly, Deborah, you don't have that responsibility. Yeah. Deborah's responsibility is just to identify the best means for us to try and raise the rest of that money and then to implement a plan. But we can't control what happens with that plan. You know, maybe we'll get the money, maybe we won't. If we don't, we'll borrow it. It's okay just means people will pay a little more for retreats than they would have. But it really is okay. So if we can just have that attitude that we do our best and we can't control the outcome, it's a way to be more comfortable, I think, with responsibility. Another area that um, a lot of ego gets tied up in is ambition. Um, in work, which is basically the ego investment of you know, recognition and uh, being rewarded with uh, money and title and so forth. When I went to work for Microsoft, I made a vow to myself. And my vow was I wasn't going to get my ego involved in my work. I was just going to go in and do the job, and I wasn't going to get caught up in the office politics or whether I got a promotion or whether I was getting paid enough all Because, I mean, I, I knew it was enough money to keep me alive. I wasn't going to get involved in that. Praise, you know, recognition, rewards, awards, and so forth. 
I succeeded for about six months. <laughs> and then my ego got totally involved. And I could see myself, you know, really wanting to be recognized and wanting a good, a, a good review. You know, we had performance reviews every six months and they were numerical. So I knew exactly where I stood. And uh, wanting the highest percentage increase that would be based on that numerical rating each time and wanting awards at sales meetings and things like that. So it snuck in, even though I was trying to be aware of it and didn't want it to happen, that level of ambition. So then all I could do is sort of watch it with perspective. And that's okay too, you know. If we can watch that stuff with perspective, we don't have to be ashamed of having an ego. In case you haven't noticed, the whole world does. You know, except for maybe the Dalai Lama and a few other people. So it's not shameful to have an ego. Okay, but how can you be in sales in that type of environment and not get caught up in that thing when they have the big board and, you know, who sold what this month? And, you know, that's a, a horrible job not to have that. <laughs> I couldn't. That's a simple answer. I couldn't. I'm sure the Buddha could have, but he probably wouldn't have bothered. <laughs> So, you know, the more we understand that those things don't ultimately matter, the freer, the more freely we can play in that world. And, I, you know, I knew people who were freer than I was about that stuff, and they hadn't even done meditation practice or even psychotherapy, so. <laughs> I respected that a lot. This ambition um, is really always focused on my pursuits and interests and self-concern, and, you know, ultimately that's suffering. That's why clinging is suffering. Shantideva, who was an 8th century Indian teacher, said, all happiness in this world comes from desiring others to be happy. All unhappiness in this world comes from wanting only myself to be happy. So this ambition stuff is usually only about myself. But when our interest is in really the welfare of others too, that's when uh, the potential for happiness really grows. I mentioned the person that I knew, my friend and manager who left Microsoft, basically out of ambition. He had had ambition for promotion to the next level, and when it was thwarted, he got so upset, he left and left behind what turns out to have been $28 million. My, sis uh, my sister, I shouldn't say this on tape, I guess, but someone I know, <laughs> was married to um, a short man. And uh, he turned out he actually was a very ambitious person. He graduated from the Naval Academy and uh, became a, a commercial airline pilot and then uh, went to work as an executive for GE and started up General Electric China uh, back in the, I guess it was the 70s, the late 70s. And uh, they moved to Hong Kong for a few years while he was heading up that operation. And uh, my sister didn't like traveling. She didn't like, you know, being the corporate wife. Uh, she didn't like that he was away all the time. She didn't like to have to move every few years so he could get another promotion. And at one time she said to me, God, if he'd only been a couple inches taller, he wouldn't have had to go through all this. <laughs> it was just a quick quip, but it's a, it's a pointer to the fact that this kind of ambition often comes from personal insecurity. It's often a lack of real fulfillment that makes us invest in things like title and status and power over other people. 
as though because we have the ability to tell other people what to do in the workspace or to allot them their percentage raise, it makes us a better or more important person. It's a fundamental illusion. Okay, I think I'll stop there. I had a a little topic on competitiveness, but um, I think we'll maybe let that come out in the discussion. I'd just like to close by reading a quotation from uh, Chuang Tzu, who was a Taoist master of 500 BC. A lot of you have probably heard this before. It's called The Empty Boat. And in many ways, it's uh, a beautiful model for living uh, in the world. If a person is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his boat, even though he is a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees someone in the other boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he will shout again, and yet again, and begin cursing. And all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he would not be shouting, and he would not be angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of this world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. So I thought what we could do is just open up to some discussion in the large group first. Then we'll probably take uh, one more break and come back. And I think some small groups might be interesting to discuss uh, some of the issues that we've touched on, like money, ambition, self-esteem, and so forth. So, comments, please. Your comment about not controlling the outcome, mm-hmm. I, I find that you know, a wonderful thought, but it seems like in the workplace it's really difficult because basically all evaluations, um, and even if you're in charge and other people are looking at you to see what you're doing, it's pretty much based on outcome. And Stuart Ross sounds like a wonderful employer, but um, other... <laughs> Other places aren't. Uh, I mean, I'm just wondering how you realize that, how you think one can realize that in the context of what the world tends to divide. I think that the outcome goes best when we're not attached to the result of it. It's the same in meditation practice. Meditation practice is such a deep teaching on this very topic, because if you approach your meditation practice with a specific goal in mind you're going to be frustrated again and again and again and again because meditation practice unfolds according to the um, ripening of the individual process. So, for instance, people come on a meditation retreat, they think that uh, they're supposed to come to greater peace, and uh, after three days they find their mind is going crazy, and that's the good part. And then after four or five days, it's dredging up you know, the most terrible memories of anything we've ever done or said to someone in our life. And after six days, it's, you know, it's unfolding this deeply held grief um, or some sadness that we've carried with us since we were 10 years old that we didn't even know was hiding there. And it feels anything but peaceful. So if we come into that meditation experience thinking that the outcome should be peace, we're going to be frustrated. If we surrender to the process and stay with it with that good intention, then eventually there's this huge clearing out And there's a great deep level of peace that's accessed and that's touched and that becomes really available to us. But we have no control over when that happens. Okay. In the workplace, 
obviously we have much closer control and more immediate results, but we really can't strictly determine what somebody around us is going to do in response to what we do. And so all we can do is do our best job. But if we do our best job and the goals have been set reasonably, then the best results will come. So I think that that element of surrender is really important for anyone who's in a work setting um, as a way of doing their best job. And when you do your best job, you have the best chance of getting the best results. We, take, we do take responsibility in our workplace for not having gotten the results, and I think that's entirely appropriate. But we also have to understand with wisdom the interdependence that means that we can't control it entirely. For example, Kofi Annan goes to negotiate um, a truce with Saddam Hussein, and he does his best effort, but he can't control the outcome of that. He has the whole responsibility for the peace of Iraq, you know, riding on his shoulders, but he can't control the outcome. But he just uh, goes and does the best job he can. And in this case, fortunately, the outcome came. So I don't know if that helps. There has to be the sense of responsibility, but underneath it, we have to know with wisdom that we're not totally in control of anything, not even our own health. I'm just curious, what happened to the manager that left Microsoft? What, <laughs> <laughs> well, he actually, um, it, was a, it was a sad story, actually, because he went to a few different companies uh, that didn't seem quite the right fit and um, is still in the high-tech industry and still in sales. Um, he was a vice president at a, a fairly well-known, uh, vice president of sales for a well-known software company for a while, um, but that ended up uh, in difficulty. And so he bounced around a bit. I think it was very unsettling to his confidence the way that that story happened. Yeah. Could you comment briefly on the distinction between right effort and right action? Mm-hmm. Right effort and right action. In, in, the, in terms of the Eightfold Path, right effort is really uh, defined in pretty um, psychological terms. It's defined as what we do to uh, bring about more wholesome states within our own hearts and minds and what we do to decrease the unwholesome states within our hearts and minds. So right effort is uh, directly connected with um, the meditation practice and the mindfulness practice and awareness. I'd say the link is that when we um, have purified the heart more and we can see more clearly, then our intention becomes purified and it's through the link of right intention that our actions become pure. So right action is kind of what we do in the world in relation to others and it's purified by a clear seeing and then traveling through this vehicle of wise intention. Does that help? Yeah. yeah. How, do you, uh, or how, how does one come to terms with, say, the difference between how much money somebody makes and what they do in terms of the value to society? You've got uh, happily to <coughs> tries to kill his and then the people that seem to be money magnets who really are you know mean or, or abusive people that really don't have a whole lot going on to them <coughs> yet they always seem to have plenty of money and then you have bright articulate attractive people that have a lot of stuff seem, seemingly going for them they have trouble 
you know, getting jobs or getting really well-paying jobs or seem to always be underpaid. I mean, if, there, if money's energy, why is it not flowing toward what's right? <laughs> <laughs> almost, or almost never is it flowing toward what's right, it seems to me. Or how do you deal with that? I wish I knew. I share your dilemma. You know, there seems, th there seems to be a lot of um, injustice in the world, you know, around this issue of money. It's a, I'll tell you basically the answer that one of my Tibetan teachers gave to me um, when a similar question like that was asked. Was say, and he, he basically said, um, this is samsara and we don't expect things to work right in samsara. And it's, it's not a cynical answer, but in the teachings of the Buddha, the world is, is deeply troubled. The world is not in good shape in the eyes of the teachings of the Buddha. There is a tremendous amount of blindness going on in the world. As you can tell from the wars and the corruption and the fighting and the greed and so forth, there's a tremendous amount of blindness going on. That blindness expresses itself in human suffering. So the bl there's also blindness in the consumer society. And um, as long as the larger mainstream society is not driven by um, a deeper underlying motivation for the liberation of heart and mind, and the welfare of all sentient beings, there are going to be huge injustices. I, th I think that the road to, you know, smoothing them out is twofold. I think it's interaction through um, people who are interested in transforming their own consciousness, and I think it's through outer action of social activists pointing out the uh, failings of the society at large to do what's needed in areas that need to be attended to, but there's clearly no quick solution, and I think there's a lot of injustice in the world today. Isn't karma, doesn't that play a large role? Say some more. I, think, I mean, I believe that people come in with a, with a particular dharma mm -hmm. that's based on on whatever karma they've had in previous lives. Mm -hmm. And um, some people are not here to sort of to make money right now. I mean, that's just not their dharma. Mm -hmm. they, they have other things they have to learn. Other people make enormous amounts of money, and they have things to learn from that. Mm -hmm. There's a balancing of the scales. We, I think we tend to look at things over such a short period of time, mm -hmm. I mean, a lifetime, of, mm -hmm. you know, no time, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is um, definitely within the teachings of the Buddha, it's very clearly stated that people carry with them into each life the uh, mental tendencies that have built up through their actions based on their intention in past lives. And so people come into this life with a different propensities. The Buddha said, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, that uh, one of the prerequisites for abundance was generosity. He said that people who uh, are kind in their relationships to living beings are blessed with uh, long life. And he made a number of comments 
around karma or kama uh, like that. So that's certainly one, um, that's one explanation. That's one possible explanation for all the discrepancies of talent, of welfare, of wealth, of health um, that you see around the world. Karim? And yet also we hear the story so often of this good Samaritan who risked mm-hmm. her life to help someone, mm-hmm. you know, and their life is cut short. Mm-hmm. And we also hear the term, why did he or she have to go? He was such a good human being. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a hard one to, um, mm-hmm. And we never know. I mean, people like Martin Luther King being killed so young, John Kennedy, Princess Diana. Um, we never know why. And um, it's one of those mysteries that we know we're exposed to also. Yeah. Nancy? Could you say something about being the bodhisattva of the workplace and balance? when we're already trying to balance work and not work and various aspects of work, and that in most workplaces there is so much need and so few people mm-hmm. filling that role that if you step in, then it becomes a bottomless pit. Mm-hmm. Good question. I think you have to bring a sense of balance to that as well. And uh, it's clear that if you want to devote some time in your workday to um, listening to other people, there's going to be um, a price to pay either in the quality of your own work or spending more time on your own work. So I think it's just another of the things you have to balance. Um, I think you have to learn in the work setting when to say no to people. If somebody drops by for a chat, being able to set time limits on it, uh, being able to tell people that you'd love to talk to them but you can't today, um, getting sort of time management um, rules, you might say, within your bodhisattva relationships. But I think you just have to manage that like all the other tasks. You know, I just kind of saw it as one other task on my to-do list, and I had to prioritize it and give it time within my other tasks. Yes? That makes me think about a, a, work situ- a workplace where there are a variety of competencies, a variety of energies, and mm-hmm. a variety of willingnesses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm so that some are there a whole lot more than others and some are, and yeah. they're all expecting, to, or they're all perceived as the same or equal. And so that really does have a, I mean, something really does begin to erode for, the, for those people who are contributing in more and others less, and the confidence in the whole workplace begins to get fuzzy. Well, in the places I've worked, which have been, um, well, I shouldn't say that. I've worked in both profit and non, for-profit and non-profit um, operations. I actually thought that the for-profit operations had much better performance review systems than the non-profit places I've worked. And I strongly endorse uh, performance review systems. And uh, I think numerical ratings are terrific. Um, and
This talk was given by Guy Armstrong at Insight Meditation Society on March 7, 1998. It is an offering of the Dharma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.